So last Sunday, we actually launched a brand new series. It's going to take us all the way through January. It's called A Questionable Life. And uh, in our introduction last week, we kind of laid that challenge out. Are you living a questionable life? And in the course of my message last week, I tried to explain what I meant by that, and I also tried to explain what I didn't mean by that. And one of the things I said was, when I talk about a questionable life, what I don't mean is, um, are you living a dodgy kind of life? And my wife kind of let me know after service, Dave, that is an English word. People in America don't use the word dodgy. They're not going to know what you're talking about. So I apologize that I use the word dodgy, but it's just such a good word, okay? Because there are some people that are just a bit dodgy, okay? Now, over here, you might use words like um, shifty, untrustworthy, questionable. Um, but let's be honest, wouldn't you rather use dodgy? Because dodgy's a good word. I mean, that, that guy is a little bit dodgy. The way that, like, that person behaved, a bit dodgy, okay? So, so when I use the word dodgy, that's what I meant. So if you want to try and use that word this week, feel free. It's a great word to try and slip into conversation. I've already had a few people after first service try and tell me that I was dodgy. So they were uh, uh, trying to use that word. And, um, but the reality is that when I talk about a questionable life, I'm not talking about a dodgy life, okay? I don't want you to live a questionable life in that sense. No, the reason we came up with a title for this series is because we want to challenge you as you kick off 2016 to maybe take a look at your life, and especially if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, to take a look at your life and say, am I living the kind of life that causes those around me my family members, my friends, my neighbors, my work colleagues? Am I living the kind of questionable life that would cause people to ask questions? So look at my life and say, why is it that you behave that way? Why is it that you respond differently than most in, in that kind of situation? Or why don't you do this when so many other people do? Or is your life the kind of life that there really is just no difference? No one's asking questions. Because I think the truth is that Jesus wants us to live, as followers of him, what I've called a questionable life. The kind of life that would cause, um, that would evoke curiosity of those that you know, that would maybe cause people you know to ask questions of you. You know, I think the person who's probably the, the greatest example of someone who ever lived, someone who lived a life that evoked curiosity and questions of him was Jesus. Jesus himself, he lived 2,000 years ago, and, and just in the short period of time that we know of his ministry, his three years of ministry, throughout that time, many things he did and many things he said caused a lot of questions. He was always being questioned, sometimes by friends, sometimes by followers, a lot of times by his enemies. But whoever it was, because of the way Jesus lived his life, because of what Jesus taught, he very often found himself being um, in a position where questions were being asked. Why do you do that? Why do your disciples do that? Who are you? He lived a questionable life. And I think as followers of Jesus, we should strive to do that too. In fact, in order to become more like Jesus, we actually laid out a challenge last Sunday morning. We, we said, if you want to join us throughout the, the month of January, we're going to read the book of Matthew together. So every morning we read a chapter of Matthew and we... Um Many of you signed up to this thing we did. It was like a text challenge where you can text the word Matthew, uh, just Matthew, to 313131. You can still do that if you want. If you text the word Matthew to 313131, you'll get a text every morning reminding you which chapter we're on. And together as a family, together as a Connect family, we can read through the book of Matthew, and it'll take us right up to January 31st 
Well, we'll read the last chapter, but it's a great book to read because it's one of the four um, biographers who wrote about the life of Jesus. And the more we get to know about Jesus himself, the more we can aspire to live like him and to live differently. To follow not just the things that he taught, but to follow the way in which he lived his life. And the great thing is, the more we get to know Jesus, the more we'll realize that many questions were asked of him. And the more we realize that many questions were asked of him, we'll realize that, man, the reason they ask questions is because he really went against the grain in so many different areas. The things that Jesus taught, the way that Jesus lived, it was very countercultural. In fact, this morning I'm going to speak about one aspect of Jesus' life, one thing that Jesus taught that I think we, as followers of Jesus, should strive to embrace in our lives. But in order to fully understand how controversial it was that Jesus taught this subject, Jesus lived this way, you need to understand the culture that he was in. If you understand the culture that he was in, you'll understand why he was questioned so much on this particular subject. So if you'll allow me just for a couple of minutes, I'm going to take you on a little history lesson here, uh, back to the Roman Empire. Okay, this was 2,000 years ago. It was the time that Jesus walked the earth, and the Romans at the time, they were populating the then-known world. They were traveling all over and conquering, and one of the, 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 the great nations that they came in and uh, conquered was Great Britain. They found their way onto that little island of Great Britain, and they started to spread all across the land, and they started to build cities. And, and many of the cities today in Great Britain still exist that were named by the Romans. The original name of that city being traced when the Romans settled in that country. In fact, you can go to cities in England and see evidence of the Romans having been there. In buildings and in, in artifacts and in archaeological digs, there's so much evidence of the Romans' uh, time that they spent in Great Britain. One of the areas that the Romans went to was a city about 100 miles from where I grew up called Bath. Okay, Bath. Now, you may have heard of it. Uh, you may have uh, heard of it as Bath. Okay, it's not how it's said. It's Bath. Okay, that's the English pronunciation, the American pronunciation, Bath. But no, it's Bath. Okay, so Bath is a beautiful city, about 100 miles from where I live, and there are natural springs there. And in these natural springs, these hot springs, the Romans built this city there because it was a great place for them to go and to relax in these spas, and it just became a very famous city where the Romans gathered. About 20 or 30 years ago, some archaeologists were doing a dig in this city, and they came across a fresh stash of these tablets that they'd found in other places. This is the first time they found them in Rome, and they're called prayer tablets. Now, it was very common in Rome for prayer tablets to be these tablets of stone that people would pay money to have a prayer inscribed on and then submitted, and they found in this cache about 150 different tablets and they actually referred to them in Bath as curse tablets because of all the tablets they found, pretty much every prayer on every tablet was a curse. It was someone paying money to write a prayer to a particular god or goddess, and as opposed to a prayer for good fortune or something like that, it was a curse. Listen to one of the curses that they found, okay? This is the actual, literal translation of one of these curses. Dossi Madus has lost two gloves. He asks that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. That's pretty harsh. I mean, I've got some nice gloves, and I'd be upset if I lost them. But this guy's like, whoever took my gloves... I want them to lose their eyes. 
He was pretty upset about these gloves that he lost. This is written on a tablet. He paid money to have this curse sent to the gods because he'd better pay for taking my favorite gloves. You know, in Rome, the, the city which was famous for its amphitheaters and its gladiators, many of these cursed tablets exist there. Here's one that was discovered in Rome itself. And I guess the person who wrote this, he must have had a little bit more money because he really went into detail on his curse. Listen to what he said. He said, I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eukaryos, the charioteer, and all of his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not come up from behind and pass, but instead let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up and let him drag behind, both in the early races and the later races. I want this guy to suffer misfortune all day long. I mean, this is some pretty serious stuff. I don't know if this guy had money riding on another charioteer, and he was really, you know, hoping that Eukaryos had a miserable day, but somebody paid a, a vast amount of money to curse this man, to call down bad luck on him. Now, I want to believe that thousands of years later, we're a lot more civilized than this, but I do wonder if in Alabama during NASCAR season, similar prayers are being prayed about the, uh, the rivals and that they won't make the turn, they won't pass the finish line, whatever it may be. But this was a chariot race, and someone has gone to great lengths to call upon curses. This was the culture that Jesus lived in. And in the midst of this culture, where curses were being purchased, Jesus comes in and introduces this idea, this radical idea of forgiveness. Not just forgiveness in the context of that culture, but an extreme version of forgiveness. It was actually an idea of forgiveness that caused people to question him. You see, his teachings were so countercultural. This was a society where, where forgiveness wasn't the norm. This was an eye-for-an-eye kind of place. Retribution, retaliation, that's what we're about. And Jesus' teachings went right against this. In fact, listen to what he said. He's, he's talking to people here in, in Matthew. If you're reading the chapter a day, you'll have read this earlier this week in Matthew chapter 5. He's talking to people who, who by choice are going to the temple to worship God. That's a good thing. You think Jesus would do nothing to get in their way or to stop them from going to worship God. But listen to what he says to them. He says, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Stop worshiping God. Go and be reconciled to that person. Go and make things right. Go and forgive that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Jesus is saying, listen, even your worship of God can be put on hold if it's stopping you from going and reconciling, going and forgiving somebody who has harmed you. It went against the curse tablet society that the people were living in. Now, I'd like to believe that this would be a great story to look at this morning and we could look back and say, wow, that must have been really powerful when Jesus talked about that in his times because back then they were cursing one another and living a lifestyle of retribution and retaliation and how interesting that is and how little it applies to me because today we live so differently. 
We don't live like that anymore. We're much more gracious and much more forgiving. Yeah. That's about as far from the truth as you can get, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Even in the movies that we watch. Have you ever seen the, the fact that every single action movie is about justice? Someone's been wronged. And someone's going to go out and they're going to right that wrong. And let's be honest here this morning. There's a part in every one of us that resonates with that. Resonates with the idea that when an injustice is done, that there's someone out there who will look for you and will find you and will kill you. We're like, yes, justice. Now, I realize that when it comes to the kidnapping of Liam Neeson's daughter, that no one expects him just to sit back and say, that's fine, I forgive you. No, we want justice to be done. But I'm talking about the fact that this isn't the only time we see this happen. Let's be honest with ourselves this morning. Maybe this Christmas you were out shopping. Maybe like me, you kind of left it a little bit late. And the 24th, it turns out that everyone's at the mall. And you're there and you're driving up and down the roads trying to find a parking spot. And there is not a parking spot to be found. And as you're driving down one, you're going the right way. The cars are parked that way. And you're going down and you see a car at the very end of the row back out. And you're like, yes, I'm going to get that space because there's no one in front of me. And as a result, it's right up by the door. And you start to go down the line and you're almost there and someone comes up the other way. And they're going the wrong way up your line and they zip into that space. And you're like, hey, that's my space. And you drive by slowly and they're there and you're looking out the window at them. And you're either thinking this in your mind or you're actually saying it out loud in your car. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. But when I get into that mall, I will look for you. And I will find you. And I will kill you <laughs> with a glare. I will kill you with a really mean glare when I see you because you took my space. The truth is we, we still get caught up in that, don't we? This kind of retribution, retaliation. We want justice. That's, that's the kind of world we still live in. So what Jesus is talking about in his culture causes questions to be asked. But the truth is that if we were to apply it to our lives today as followers of Jesus, it's going to cause questions in our circles too. Because at our core, when we've been wronged, we want to retaliate. We want retribution. We want revenge. It's only right after all because we were the ones who were wronged. And that's what makes this idea of forgiveness so questionable. Because to forgive is somehow to kind of cop out in our culture. It's almost uh, allowing the person who has wronged us to, to get away with it. And I think forgiveness raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? And the standard of forgiveness that Jesus demands of, of us as followers of him is so high. Because you see, if we truly want to live our lives as followers of Jesus, it should cause people to ask questions of us. And I think it should be seen in our ability to forgive. I want to give you an example of what I mean by that uh, in a news article that I came across. There's a very powerful story, so check this out. Tonight, with one of the most potent powers on earth, it can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. 
for all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, yes, CBS News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. Isn't that powerful? See, that lady, as a follower of Jesus, felt led, felt compelled to, to live a life of forgiveness. And I think that's the kind of forgiveness that evokes questions. A lot of us think maybe I, I could never do that. And, and you know what? Maybe you're right. Because that forgiveness is beyond anything that we imagine. It's certainly beyond anything that we could ever do on our own. And yet at the same time, it's that kind of radical forgiveness that Jesus is inspiring us to seek out. There's no doubt about it. Jesus lived a questionable life when it came to the subject of forgiveness. Throughout this subject, or throughout this series, sorry, we're going to be looking at questions that people ask Jesus himself. He was always having to field questions from followers and friends and enemies. And on the subject of forgiveness, it came to him one day as a question from one of his closest friends, a disciple by the name of Peter. 
Matthew tells us the story in Matthew chapter 18. We can read it together here. The verses will be up on the screen. But in Matthew 18, 21, Peter's obviously been around Jesus for a while now. He thinks he's kind of figured out this whole forgiveness thing, that Jesus is very countercultural and he's doing it differently than what they're used to. So Peter comes to Jesus and Rather than just ask the question, he kind of asks and answers the question. He says, uh, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who has sinned against me? Up to seven times? Now, this number seven times is a very significant number. Let me explain to you what Peter's doing here. You see, Peter was a Jew. He knew that Jesus was a Jew. And he knew that Peter, Peter knew that Jesus would know that in Jewish culture there, the rabbis would have taught that you were to give a, forgive a person three times. That was kind of the law that time. That was kind of the, the teaching that when it came to forgiveness, you were to forgive someone three times. So if they wronged you, if they harmed you in some way, you were to forgive them once. If they harmed you again, you had to forgive them a second time. And, and if they did it a third time, you still had to forgive them. But after three, all bets are off. No forgiveness for you. That's where it ends, right there. The forgiveness, it had a limit. So what Peter's doing here, and I have to picture Peter doing this. I wonder if the other disciples are, are looking on, and he's almost kind of looking out the corner of his eye to make sure they're listening. He's like, Jesus, uh, when it comes to forgiveness, should I forgive uh, seven times? Huh? You see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> I doubled it, and I added one. I'm a forgiving machine. I, I know Jesus is going to be impressed with this, because not only did I, I double the, the standard three, I even added another one. So Peter, I think, is kind of like showing off a little bit, saying, hey, Jesus, I bet the answer's... He, he, he probably thinks that Jesus would go, well, I was going to say six, but seven, that's great. But much to Peter's dismay, listen to how Jesus does respond. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. I think Jesus, Peter at that point was probably shocked uh, by this idea of this seven times 11 and the point's not the number itself, but the exaggeration of the number. Jesus isn't saying we should forgive 77 times, but on the 78th time, you can have Adam. No, he's just trying to say, listen, there is no number. You should forgive and forgive and forgive. And just in case Peter didn't fully understand it from a numerical point of view, Jesus then tells a story. Not just for Peter's sake, but for everyone else that was listening. And even for you and I today to understand the concept of the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about. The kind of forgiveness that raises questions. Here's the story that Jesus tells. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, that they should all be sold to slavery to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt and he let him go. He didn't say, all right, I'll give you a few more weeks. All right, I'll, I'll lower the debt. This is the most powerful part of the story. He says he canceled the debt. He wiped the slate clean, forgave him of all that he owed, and let him go. Here we have a servant who owes his manager a debt so large, he could never pay it back. If we had to try and figure out today what 10 bags of gold, um, oh, sorry, 10 bags, 10,000 uh, bags of gold 
would calculate out today, you'd be in the billions, over $2 billion. This guy could win the current lottery and still not be able to pay him back. He owed so much money. There was no way he was going to be able to pay him back. And the master wants his money back. In fact, he's threatening to sell his family into slavery. This wasn't in any way to try and recoup his losses. This was a punishment. This was to say, because you can't pay me back, because you can't pay the debt you owe, I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to punish your family. But as that servant said, please have mercy on me, the master did just that. He had mercy on the servant, and he canceled the debt. He wiped the slate clean. I think the people listening to the story must have thought, wow, what a, what a benevolent master. What a great story. What a, what a man that must have been to have been able to wipe out the debt. But the story doesn't end there. Listen to how Jesus continues on with this story because there's a really specific point he wants to make here about forgiveness. He says, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins, 10,000 bags of gold, 100 silver coins. He grabbed him. He began to choke him. He said, pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. He says, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had the same mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. You know, what Jesus is saying here is that no sooner had that servant who'd been forgiven of such a great debt no sooner had he left that he comes across someone who, who is a little bit of debt to him too. Those coins, those silver coins, would probably be worth about $4,000 today. So it's a significant debt. It's nothing that you would just throw away and not think about. If I'd borrowed a $4,000 off of any of you this morning, I've got a feeling you'd still be coming to me today saying, Hey, Dave, you got my money? <laughs> I'd kind of like that back. But compared to what he'd been forgiven of, compared to the debt that he'd been freed of, it was very, very small. So why did the servant not just forgive the guy the $4,000? I think that's a great question. Honestly, I believe that he didn't forgive because he didn't really understand what it meant to be forgiven. And the context of that and this story Jesus told in our lives today comes in this phrase that I'm about to say that's probably the uh, strongest phrase that I can say all morning. It's impossible to be a forgiving person until I fully embrace that I am a forgiven person. You see, when it comes to forgiveness, it's impossible to be a forgiving person unless we fully embrace that we ourselves are forgiven people. In this story, we're the the servant. We've been forgiven the two and a half billion dollars. The debt that we owed to God were the sins that we've committed, the, the things that the Bible says are the wrong things that we've done, and they've stacked up like a huge debt in front of us, a huge debt of billions of dollars between us and God, and there's no amount of good works, no amount of good living, no amount of saying sorry that will ever clear that debt. We can't ever clear it in our own strength. We're like the servant who's crying out to God saying, God, I'm so sorry. 
And Jesus is teaching that like the master, God had pity on us. And he forgave us of that great debt. In fact, it cost him greatly. It cost him his son, Jesus. But in sending Jesus, he canceled that cost. However, despite being forgiven $2 billion worth of debt, sometimes like that servant, we struggle to forgive the $4,000 offenses ourselves. We have a hard time, don't we, forgiving the person that stole that parking spot we were waiting on. We have a hard time forgiving the coach who didn't pick us for the team or who didn't give our kids the, the playing time that they deserve. Sometimes we have a hard time forgiving our spouse for not putting the Christmas decorations back in the attic on Monday like I said I would. But uh, fortunately, <laughs> I did put them back and my wonderful wife did forgive me. But those are the little things, aren't they? The reality is that we also have a hard time. If we have a hard time with those mild offenses, how much harder is it when we hit some of those bigger ones? The dad who abandoned our family when we were just a kid. The close friend or business partner who betrayed our trust and our relationship. Maybe the spouse who walked out on us, leaving us relationally devastated as a family. It's hard to forgive those family members, those people, those situations. Because let's be honest, it costs us to forgive, doesn't it? Maybe that explains why we have such a hard time forgiving, because it, it feels like the other person wins, and we don't like that. And yet forgiveness is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he's calling us to be people who have been forgiven to forgive others. So let me be clear this morning, before I uh, kind of close out by giving you like a little challenge on how you forgive, let me be clear at what forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not a choice to just blindly trust someone again. Many times there's a good reason not to trust someone immediately again, maybe not to trust them at all. It's not about placing ourselves back into a situation where we were hurt or placing ourselves back into a situation where we're, we're setting ourselves up to be hurt again. It's good sometimes to create healthy boundaries and say, listen, what you did hurt me, and I'm not going to put myself back in that position to be hurt again. But the forgiveness part, we do have a choice in that. You know, forgiveness is also not a choice that we make that will immediately take away all the pain. In that video we just watched, we saw a mother who had lost her son, who, who, her son had been murdered by somebody else. And in three minutes, we saw her come full circle and, and forgive the person who did that. But the reality is, that three-minute video captured 12, 13, 14, 15 years of this woman's life and how long it took her to come to that point of being able to forgive that man and finally be able to, to have that relationship with that man. So this morning, I want to challenge you. Challenge you on this idea of forgiveness. Because forgiveness is something that you need to choose to do. Because like the parable that Jesus told, that, that choice is a choice to cancel the debt. We're saying, you know, I cancel that debt. When someone's hurt us, our natural instincts want to hurt them back to, to even the score. I'm in debt and it's payback time, but forgiveness is canceling the debt. It's absorbing the loss. And the reality is there is a cost to forgiveness. That costs us to have to cancel that debt, to almost have to get to a place of saying, well, I feel like I'm letting them get away with it. There is a cost to forgiving someone. But could I throw out this thought to you this morning? I believe there's a cost to unforgiveness. 
I believe either way there's going to be a cost. And, and this morning, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're checking out Connect, maybe you've been coming a while and you're still not really sure what you believe about all this, the great news for you this morning is this really is a challenge that Jesus gave us as followers of him. We've been forgiven by God for many, many things, so we in turn should forgive others. But you may say, well, I don't live by that standard, so I'm not going to choose to do that. And that's fine, but the reality is, I think for you this morning, even, as, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is still great advice because I think there is a cost to unforgiveness. At the end of Jesus' story, that unforgiven servant, he was thrown into prison for his lack of forgiveness. And the reality is, I think when we choose not to forgive, we can be thrown into our own prison. When we choose to hold on to a grudge against someone who has wounded ourselves, we can find ourselves living in a prison of hate, a prison of anger, and a prison of bitterness. And the reality is when it comes to forgiveness, there is a cost to forgive, but I think there's a greater cost to us to not forgive. So I know it's not easy for some of us, especially with some of those really um, big areas of our life, to just forgive and it may take time, and it may take prayer, and it may be a process. But I honestly do feel that the, the cost of forgiving is still less than the cost of unforgiving. You know, Paul gives us a little bit of a clue, a little bit of an idea in, in how to do this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. There's two little words in the middle there, but they are huge words. The words just as. He didn't say, do unto others as they deserve, or do unto others as they've already done to you. He said, do unto others just as God has already done to you. Forgive each other just as in Christ God has forgiven you. You become a forgiving person when you fully embrace that you are a forgiven person. That's what causes us to live a questionable life. Because forgiving someone those 4,000 debts, that's, that's pretty amazing. But it, it may not drive the kind of questions that I'm talking about this morning. But when we start to become the kind of person like the lady in that video that, that forgives a $100,000 debt or a million-dollar debt, that's the kind of forgiveness that evokes questions of our lives. Living a questionable life means that we forgive before the other person ever apologizes. We forgive even if everyone around us is crying out for vengeance. We forgive even though they really do owe us something. But as forgiven people, people who have embraced the idea that we are forgiven, we make that choice to forgive. We forgive just as in Christ God forgave us. Can we pray together this morning? Father, I know that for many of us, we can register this in our heads. This is a concept that we can understand. It's a teaching that you taught that in our heads we can, we can grasp. But the reality is that sometimes that, that journey from our heads to our hearts is a difficult one. And I know, Lord, that for some here this morning, the idea of this forgiveness was a great thought and a great concept. And they're going to file it away and say, okay, when I come across that situation, I'm going to apply that truth. But I know, Lord, that there are some this morning that I've been speaking about this subject. They've been drawn to a specific situation. Or they've been drawn to a specific person who maybe in the last year or two years, or it could have been years ago, but still they're founding themselves trapped in this prison because of the, the, the hurt and the pain that that person caused. And maybe this morning, Lord, they're, they're wrestling with this whole idea because they're realizing, you know, I don't think I've ever forgiven that person for what they did to me. 
And they're struggling with the idea of having to forgive them because it's almost like, but then they get away with it. I want justice to be done. I want retribution. I want retaliation. But God, your son Jesus, he taught us to live a different kind of life. To exhibit the kind of forgiveness that we saw in that video today. And I pray for those here this morning, especially those who are followers of Jesus this morning, that as hard as it is that they would say, God, I, I can't do this in my own strength, but I want to try. Would you help me forgive that person? Would you help me make that right? Would you help me, uh, whether it's writing a letter that I may never send or talking to someone and asking for prayer and help or whatever it is, just to release that debt that they have over me and forgive them? That's the kind of forgiveness, Lord, that evokes questions in our lives. And the great news is, Lord, that the answer to all of those questions is, is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. It's only through him that I'm able to forgive because he gave up so much to forgive me. I'm able to forgive others. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.